This past week, our shared 91-week journey through the Word of God placed us once again in one of my favorite Old Testament books, the book of Nehemiah. And so today, our consideration and our teaching will come from that book, from Nehemiah chapter 8, the 10th verse, a very, very familiar portion of Scripture. It says, Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I've entitled today's teaching, The Word of Joy. And word is capitalized not just because it's a part of the title, but because I'm specifically referring to the Word of God. Because the Word of God is the Word of Joy. Before we embark on our journey through God's Word, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to preach and teach your truth accurately and faithfully. And by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand it and then apply it in faith and loving trust and obedience. And as always, we pray these things for the glory and the honor of Christ, and we pray them in his great name. Amen. And amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. Today we're going to be focusing on joy. It's something that everybody in this room desires, but it's something that we often find rather elusive. Truth be told, there are times in our lives when we feel like the odds of us finding joy and holding on to joy are about the same as us properly pronouncing all those Hebrew names we read in Nehemiah and chapter 7 and 8, zero to none. But my hope is that when we've included or concluded the insights that are embedded in the book of Nehemiah, you'll see that joy is readily available to you. It is part of your spiritual birthright as a follower of Christ. It just awaits some strategic decisions on your part. Now, at first glance, what is probably the best-known verse that speaks of joy seems out of place the result of some cut and paste gone horribly wrong. Because the declaration, the joy of the Lord is your strength, sounds like it ought to be in the Psalms, doesn't it? Embedded in some chorus of praise. Instead, we find it in the historical narrative of Nehemiah embedded in cries of great distress. What an odd place to find a declaration of joy but I trust you'll see it really isn't that odd at all. It's God's way of telling us something about where joy can be found. The announcement was made right after the citizens of Jerusalem had finished the first part of urban renewal. They had restored the walls of the city. But it's easier to build walls than it is to rebuild your soul. And so their spiritual restoration was far from complete. It was still a work in progress. They were in great distress because they were slaves in a land that God had intended for them. They were literally slaves in their own land. 
They worked hard to produce crops, but the bulk of their harvest belonged to the kings who ruled over them, foreign kings. And while many victims of injustice in history are truly victims of the evil of others, in the case of the citizens of Jerusalem, the reading of God's word had made them aware that their mess was their own doing. They had nobody to blame but themselves because God had not abandoned them. They had abandoned God. And when they became aware of that, it birthed what we talked about last weekend. It birthed godly sorrow in their hearts, the kind of sorrow that leads to a changed life. But God didn't want them to stay mired in godly sorrow. It's a necessary starting point for restoration. You have to own your mess before you'll bring it to the Lord. But it was never meant to be their final destination. God wanted them to press through their sorrow and arrive at joy. And the word that he gave through Nehemiah would prove to be critical in that process. Now, as I said last weekend, Nehemiah is a symbolic book. It's a dramatization of how God restores our souls, the part we have to play and the part that God will play. And this piece of the story reminds us that joy is indispensable to enduring, enduring, long-lasting spiritual restoration. And the absence of joy leaves us vulnerable. In short, you will never arrive at the destination God intended for you unless you travel with joy. If you're traveling without joy, you're going to be vulnerable to dysfunction, to discouragement, to deception, to damage, and to defeat. So God announced the strategic role of joy to spare Judah from unnecessary pain and to speed up their permanent recovery. And his words weren't just meant for ancient Judah, they were meant for us. But just like the people of ancient Judah, we don't always respond to God's announcements the first time we hear them, or the second, or the third, or the fourth, or the fifth. Stop me somewhere. Hey? Many times in the aftermath of a mess of our own making, or an evil that's been perpetrated upon us by another, we come before the Lord, but we're not seeking permanent restoration. We're just seeking momentary relief. We like a God who cleans up rather than a God who requires commitment. We like a God who responds when we say, clean up on aisle seven. But we are a little fearful of a God who wants to clean up everything inside of us. Because when God gets loose, suddenly we feel like we aren't in control. But here's the good news. God loves you too much to let you mess up your own restoration. Try though you will. So that's why after talking about the need of restoration in the first six chapters, the book of Nehemiah in chapter 7 shifts to how you can make your restoration permanent rather than momentary and fleeting. But boy, it starts in a rather strange way. It opens with a lengthy list of hard 
hard to pronounce, I can't even pronounce, pronounce, hard to pronounce names. I mean, let's be frank, that was hard reading, getting through that long list of Hebrew family names, because I bet you didn't know any of the people that were mentioned there. It was the roll call of the families who had returned to Jerusalem, who would be entrusted by God with Jerusalem's future. Now, how does that long list of hard-to-pronounce names set the stage for the announcement of permanent restoration and joy? Well, it reminds us that joy is rooted in the knowledge that there are no unimportant people in God's sight. In God's sight, there are no little people. There are no insignificant people. There are no marginalized people. There are no background people. There are no write-off people. God is no respecter of persons. The ground is level before the throne of God. And it was important for these folks to know that because they were enslaved. They felt like nameless numbers on the tax rolls of an empire. But as they heard their names being called, it reminded them that God knew them, that God knew them by name. And when God knows your name, you can never be insignificant. You can never be unimportant. When God has numbered the very hairs of your head, you can never be a forgotten person. In a world of 7.4 billion people, God knows you. He knows what you're dealing with. He cares passionately about your restoration. If you aren't convinced of that, you'll never find joy. If you're convinced of that, you're on the way to finding a joy that can never be taken from you. Now, once he had established that, once God's Spirit had established that in chapter 7, chapter 8 highlights the fact that joy requires ongoing re-instruction. It's the result of both knowing and practicing God's Word. Now, I intentionally hyphenated the word re-instruction because I want to emphasize an important fact. When we step into God's kingdom, we need to be re-instructed because we've already been instructed. We've been instructed by the lies of this world. The moment you enter into this world, you are being indoctrinated by the lies of this world, by lies about who God is, lies about who you are, lies about where significance is to be found, where joy is to be found, where pleasure is to be found, where meaning is to be found, where purpose is to be found. The moment you step into this world, you're indoctrinated with an endless stream of lies. That's why when Scripture calls us to the renewing of our minds, it's I-N-G, renewing. It has to be going on all the time because the world never stops selling its bogus lies. You need constant re-instruction in God's blessed truth. And if you have any doubt of that, let me remind you of something. Every sin we commit is an indicator of a lie we have believed. Every time you and I sin, and we sin, it indicates we have embraced a lie. We have embraced the lie that our interests would be better served by disobeying God rather than obeying Him. Otherwise, why sin? 
And if you notice, if lies are repeated often enough, they start to sound like truth. That was not only true in Nazi Germany. That's true in our society today. I've watched lies that were unimaginable in my youth become accepted as truth in my later years. If you say a lie often enough, people begin to believe it's the truth. So we need constant re-instruction. Now, these citizens of Jerusalem knew they needed re-instruction, so they assembled in front of the water gate, not the hotel in D.C. That would come later. They assembled in front of the gate where people went out of the city to fetch water and bring it back in. And they were largely illiterate people. So they asked Ezra, the high priest, to read the first five books of the Word aloud to them. And what a fitting setting for the reading of God's Word, the water gate, because all throughout Scripture, water is a symbol of the Word of God. Much like a pastor today, Ezra found an elevated platform from which to speak. He did that so he could be seen and heard. And he did two things. He not only read the Word, but he gave the sense of it. He unpacked it, and he explained it. Because joy requires knowing what the Bible means, not just what it says. I just want to scream when I hear pastors and teachers quote Scripture and then quote Scripture and never unpack the meaning of that Scripture. That really doesn't help people very much. Pastors and teachers need to unpack the words. And I want you to notice these people were so hungry for the Word of God. They were willing to stand and listen to somebody declare it from daybreak until noon in a desert climate with no PowerPoints, no graphics, no sound system, and certainly no air conditioning. They stood for hours. This was long before television and social media and their eldest child, little chronic impatience, had reduced the human attention span to that of a two-year-old in a toy store. You know, studies have shown that our attention spans are now about 20 seconds. We've been conditioned by commercials. We find it difficult to focus on the Word of God. They stood from daybreak till noon. And it ought to remind us that if we spend hours focused on other things, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I I watch Steeler games like anybody else. And that's several hours of my life. But if we do that and only give minutes to the Word of God, we will struggle to find joy. We will struggle to hold on to joy. We will struggle to live enjoy because the word of God is essential to your joy and your joy is your strength there's a reason why we're encouraging you in daily reading of God's word because without that you're going to be a spiritual weakling and a big target for the attacks of the enemy 
But I want you to notice what happened next. It reminds us that knowing what the Bible means may initially produce sorrow. But that's okay because sorrow is the necessary forerunner of joy. You have to get sad before you get glad. You have to own your mess before you bring it to the Lord. And I want to stress that today because we're living in an era where I find increasing numbers of people rejecting any biblical teaching that makes them feel badly about themselves or any biblical teaching that might be offensive to their friends or any biblical teaching that might make their friends feel badly about themselves. Oh, well, that can't be what the Bible means because that makes me sad. That can't be what the Bible really meant to say because that would make my friend feel sad. So what do we do? We begin to edit the Word of God, cut and paste our Bibles, removing anything that might be offensive to us or offensive to our friends. And that's a betrayal of God. It's a betrayal of His Word. It's a betrayal of your friends. And it's a betrayal of yourself. Because all we have to do is look at the last week in the life of our nation to know we are a mess. And do you expect a perfect God to speak into messes like this without us feeling a little badly about who we are and what we've done? Really? See, that's, that's not Christianity. That's what's been called moral therapeutic deism the religion of America. What is moral therapeutic deism? The belief that there is a God and he wants me to feel good about myself and be nice to other people. Well, there is a God. And he wants you to know the, his joy. And he does want you to love others, even your enemies. But you'll never do that by denying the portions of Scripture that point out your mess. See, much of what passes for friendship currently is nothing but betrayal. If my friend has cancer and I know it, and I refuse to tell him that because I don't want him to feel badly, am I a friend or have I betrayed him? Some of you, in the name of love, are as unloving as anybody could ever be. You are betraying yourself and your friends. Oh, if the word offends you, well, then, then, that, then we need to quit teaching that. No, no, no. Many times, in fact, all the time, joy has its roots in godly sorrow. So when the people heard the word, they began to weep. They saw the perfection of God in their own mess. But on this occasion, the weeping needed to wait a moment. God instructed Nehemiah to tell them to stop weeping. They, they could get back to that, and they would get back to that. But initially, God wanted them to stop weeping because this was a day sacred to God, and the joy of the Lord was their strength. Now, what was that all about? I think it's God's way of reminding us the confession of sin without joy will sink into condemnation or confusion. Let me put it differently. When you're confessing your sin before the Lord, you need to do so with the conviction that he is a loving God who wants to restore you 
Because absent that peace, your confession will just put you in the quagmire and the quicksand of self-condemnation and shame, and then you won't go anywhere. You see, without joy, your confession will fix your focus on your failure rather than on God's forgiveness, on your guilt rather than on God's grace. So joy and confession go together. If your confession isn't wrapped in joy, it becomes unsafe. Now, up to this point, I've intentionally avoided a definition of joy because I think definitions make more sense once you've put some foundations under them. But with the foundations we've looked at, let me suggest this definition. The joy of the Lord is a God-given sense of well-being that's rooted in the knowledge that God offers the solution to my biggest problem, my sin. My sin. The prolific Christian writer G.K. Chesterton once entered a writing contest. And the ground rules of the contest the entrants were to respond as best they could to one simple question. What is wrong with the world? Chesterton's response consisted of two words. I am. What's wrong with the world? I am. He won the contest. Because the biggest problems in this world are not out there, they're in here. We sleep with the enemy. We have met the enemy and it's us. It's our own sin. Because if you are being freed by God from the sin in your life, you can deal with the ugliness in other people. You can even love your enemies. You can speak peace when others are speaking violence. You can be salt, preventing decay when others are advancing decay. If you aren't dealing with your sin, if you aren't walking with God, everything in your life can be rosy and you'll still be a miserable hot mess. God offers the solution to our biggest problem. Now, why is that important? Because that gives us gratitude. And when it comes to obeying the Lord, Gratitude is a greater motivator than guilt. I see people trying to motivate themselves to obey God by guilt. Don't do that. Guilt leaves you in a ditch along the side of the road with four flat tires. Guilt will never motivate you. Gratitude motivates you. You see, guilt will rub your nose in your past sins and drain your resolve. Joy invites your heart to believe God for a better future, and it energizes your resolve. That's why the old preacher Matthew Henry said, gratitude and joy are oil to the wheels of obedience. Gratitude and joy. Now, once the people began to rejoice, it was time for them to observe the ancient Jewish festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. That was something God had established long ago. It was meant to be a reminder to them that they weren't yet in the land, the place that God had promised them. They were pilgrims. And what does that have to say about joy? It reminds us that joy emphasizes our pilgrim status. Let me unpack that. Joy is rooted in the knowledge that this world 
with all of its violence and all of its injustice and all of its ugliness that we've been reminded of this past week, this world is not my final destination. This world is not my home. This is a place I am passing through. I am on my way to a better place. This is temporary. That is eternal. This is heartache city. That's hallelujah city. This is befraught with evil. That is filled with the joy of the Lord. Our citizenship, as Paul said, is not in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Why is that important to joy? Let me tell you why. Because here are the two biggest barriers to joy, expecting too much of life and expecting too little of God. I've seen it again and again. When you demand too much of life in a broken world, you will be left to argue with life all the time. And guess who's got to win that argument? And if you expect too little of God, you'll never know the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Feast of Tabernacles reminds us we'll be joyful when we expect less of the world and expect more from God. You know, it's often said that joy and happiness aren't the same thing, and that's right. Our word happiness comes from the old English word hap. And that old English word referred to somebody's circumstances. So if their circumstances were positive, they were called happy. And if they were difficult, they were called unhappy. So happiness is a fragile thing because it's a sense of well-being based on circumstances we can't control. In contrast, joy is an enduring sense of well-being because it's rooted in the person and the character of God who never changes. But I want to say to you today, that doesn't mean that happiness and joy are enemies. They are not. The good news is you can have both. Because Proverbs 29 says, happy is he who keeps the law of God. And what does that mean? It means when I align my life with the manufacturer's instructions, and that's what the Bible is, the manufacturer's instruction manual, God telling you what will work for you and what won't work for you. When I align my life with God's truth, I have put myself in a blessed circumstance. My hap my circumstance is excellent. So I can be both joyful and happy. You might put it this way. Joy is the kind of happiness that doesn't depend on what happens. It depends on my walk with God. So when it comes to joy and happiness, here's the good news. You don't have to pick one. If you choose joy... Happiness will be thrown in with no extra shipping and handling charges. We all hear those commercials, but wait. We'll throw in a second one. And God is saying, but wait. When you get joy, you'll also get happiness and no shipping and handling charges. So the experience of people in chapter 9 makes it clear that joy isn't contrary to repentance. It actually complements it. And once the people had moved in both joy and sorrow, they entered an extended time of confession and self 
judgment. Because here's the truth. When you are convinced of God's love for you, then you can be authentic about what is unlovely in you. The more secure you are in the love of God, the more you can be brutally, judgment day, honest with yourself about yourself because there's nothing to be feared there and everything to be gained. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the importance of praise. Did you notice that they mixed their confession with praise? They did three hours of confession, three hours of praise. Three hours of confession, three hours of praise. They understood the praise power dynamic. And then they concluded by making a formal written commitment to God that they would put him first in their life and they would never forsake their assembling together. God, you'll be first in our life. A formal written commitment. You know, I have found <coughs> in 40 years of pastoring, people sometimes get bent out of shape. Their undies get all wadded up when the church suggests that they ought to make formal commitments for serving, for giving, for praying, and so on. How dare the church ask me to make a formal commitment? But every day they pull one of these out of their pocket and insert it or slide it, and every time they do, they are making a formal commitment. Every time you use one of these, this is my ATM, and no, you can't have my pen. But every time we use one of these, we're making a commitment. Every time I sign an auto loan, I'm making a commitment. When I agree to a mortgage, I'm making a commitment. When I accept the terms of employment, I'm making a commitment. When I hire somebody, I'm making a commitment. See, the issue isn't making commitments. The issue is making a commitment to the one person we ought to be able to trust, God. God. Oh, church shouldn't ask us to formalize. Grow up. Grow up. Time to get out of diapers, time to quit messing yourself, time to get onto a diet of meat, not milk. There is no such thing as following Jesus without commitment. The idea that there is is just misguided, empty-headed sentimentality, worth nothing at the judgment seat. You follow that course, and when you stand there, it will say, I never knew you. Who are you? You expected a commitment from me. You never made one to me. So the word of joy was given to downtrodden people to remind us joy isn't an elusive goal. It is the starting point for restoration. It doesn't come upon you. It wells up from within you when you make the decision to trust God. So you have a choice. You can go through life joyful or miserable. The choice is up to you. And I would remind you, the amount of work is the same. I mean, you have to work at being miserable just as you have to work at being joyful. The amount of work is the same, but the results are not. The joy of the Lord is necessary for people who want to swim upstream in a downstream world. And that's what Christians do. We go against the current every moment that we live. Let me say something in closing, and, and those are the two words that every, every person wants to hear when somebody's preaching, in closing. <clears throat> the religion editor of the Post-Gazette, who I've come to know, 
emailed me this week and said, Pastor Rock, do you think in light of the tragic events this past week in our nation that pastors in our city will change the message that they were going to preach this weekend? And, and, and my response was so enlightened. <laughs> I said, I don't know. I don't know what other pastors are going to do. I can't answer that, Peter. I don't know. Hey? But I said this. I said, I'm not going to. Because while we need to address and pray about and speak about the evils that we have watched with horror, if the church is going to be a prophetic voice to a nation, it has to know God's Word. An ignorant church will never be a prophetic voice. I reminded him that the Apostle Paul and those early believers lived in a world with even more injustice than ours. Living under Roman oppression made the events of this past week in America look tiny in comparison. Slavery, executions, injustice. Rome was ugly. Paul's word was, world was ugly. But they didn't preach the ugliness of man. They preached the beauty of Christ. In a world of darkness, they didn't talk about darkness. They shone a light. And they literally turned the Roman world on its ear. History affirms that. The strength of the church is not the volume of its protest. Protest is right. But the strength of the church is not the volume of our protest. And the strength of the church is not our anger, though righteous anger is called for. The strength of the church is the joy of the Lord. That's the strength of his people. And I also want to remind you, if you were to ask, what's ACAC doing about what's happening in America? We're doing the most powerful thing. Because in a country where the divide between black and white is growing deeper by the day, when we're giving back the little gains we made after the civil rights movement, thousands of people, black and white, walking into this place because the Christ who unites them, the Christ who unites them is greater than the sin and the silliness that would divide them. Speaks a whole lot louder than somebody holding a banner, somebody shooting somebody else. You see, the prophetic word needs to be seen. Seen as well as heard. So I said, Peter, we're just got to keep on keeping on because that's always been the hope of the world, light that shines in the darkness and people who move in the joy of the Lord and move with strength. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, first we thank you for pulling us out of darkness into the light. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for pulling us out of hatred and violence and vindictiveness and malice 
and pulling us into forgiveness and love and grace and mercy. Thank you for forgiving our ugliness, our sin, our hatred. Thank you for offering us a hope and a future. Thank you for assuring us that everything we dread will pass away and everything we delight in will come to pass. Thank you for knowing our names and caring about us. Thank you for offering us joy as our strength rather than anger as our motivation. Thank you for calling us to be peacemakers, not peace breakers. Thank you for calling us the loving community, not lasting conflict. Thank you for calling us to the protest of holiness, not the protest of hatred. And Father God, I pray you would help us to protest well in the joy of the Lord and to offer a sick and broken culture with victims on every side something better. Hope. Hope based on the one who is our living hope, the resurrected Christ, whose name is above every name and who will one day make this world his kingdom. Help us to be the church in joy. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.